welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and linguist-ish. Um, I'm Allison, your Roman archaeologist and late antique scholar. And today, for the very first time, we have a special guest. Yay! Yay! Hello, loyal listeners. My name is Maddie. Um, I am Julianne Allison's friend. I am a criminologist <laughs> and decidedly not an expert on anything classical. Um, I did my master's in comparative criminal justice and international law. But I love Percy Jackson with a very large part of my heart, so I'm happy to be here today to discuss the Battle of the Labyrinth. Yes! Yay! <laughs> it's, it's very exciting to us to, like, have a new person to talk to about this shit that we are both obsessed with. Yeah, so you can uh, temper the weird arguments we get into. Well, I mean... <laughs> yeah, based I mean... On, <laughs> based on past experience, no, she cannot. Um, so, as Maddie just mentioned, this week we're talking about Percy Jackson number four, The Battle of the Labyrinth, and uh, before we get into it, I guess we should say whether we liked it. Uh, yeah, it's fairly obvious, I think, at this point that... A, that I love all of them, and from what Maddie said in her intro, she also loves all of them. <laughs> so, Julia, did y you like it? Yes, and I will say, I mean, I think that this is probably my favorite one so far. Certainly mm. it's the one that I read, like, in the most kind of absorbed fashion. Uh, so, I, like... I think I said this about the last one, too, but it's even more obvious in this one that Riordan has really hit his stride. So, and the series is, like, happening. Yes. It's, it's great. It's, this one's really, really good. Uh, yeah, so Maddie has kindly volunteered to give us a recap. So do you want to do that? And we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so this is entirely ad-libbed because none of us thought to write it down. Um, but yeah, this is my this is my favorite book of the series. That's why I wanted to come on to the pod for this one. Um, so yeah, we enter Percy Jackson number four, which is not what the book is called, but that's fine. Um, Percy is starting a new school, so he's going on a tour at Mr. Blowfish's um, high school. So his mom's beau. Uh, is a teacher at a new high school that Percy is determined not to blow up. He, of course, uh, runs into Rachel Elizabeth there, who was introduced in the third book, Titan's Curse, when she saves him from Army of the Undead or whatever it was in the Hoover Dam. Uh, so he blows up the school as Classic. he does. Every yeah, time. Um, runs into Annabeth. He and Annabeth return to camp where they discover that things are amiss. Kronos's army is building, or rather at the time Luke's army is building. They're looking for the labyrinth. They find the labyrinth. Annabeth is given a quest. Percy, Annabeth, Tyson, and Grover are part of this quest. They enter the labyrinth. Hijinks ensue. They exit the labyrinth. <laughs> um, Percy visits many fun locations, such as Mount St. Helens and Ojigia. Sure. We'll Potentially not how that's pronounced. Um, yeah, and then they fight monsters, and then the book ends. <laughs> I thought that, that that was pretty good. That felt a little unfocused. 
focused, but that's fine. That I is will, technically what happens in the book. Yes. So I will I will editorialize slightly to insert some slightly Much more information. <laughs> that was delightful though, so I'm not gonna cut it. Uh, I'll say a couple of important things to add. Uh, the reason that they're in the labyrinth, so the labyrinth of your is now this like organic thing that exists under all of the US and it essentially allows you to like fast travel from place to place like you are in a video game um except but like it you it's also mysterious and you can't control where you're going yeah it's really hard to navigate but there is an entrance in camp half blood so if Luke and Kronos' forces are able to find a way to navigate the labyrinth they will be able to emerge inside of the wards at Camp Half-Blood and just, like, obliterate the Half-Bloods, and it will be very, very bad. So Percy and Annabeth et al. are trying to find a way to stop Luke et al. from getting their hands on Ariadne's thread, which is a device that allows for the navigation of the labyrinth, which is in the possession of Daedalus, 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 or Daedalus, depending on... <laughs> Who you are. Who is speaking in yeah. the mic at the current moment, yeah. I'm sure we will pronounce it all of those ways over the course of the next however long. You're just gonna have to deal with it, listener. Yeah. Um, such is life. We're sorry. <laughs> Existence is suffering. Yeah. Um, also, at the beginning of the book, we're introduced to mysterious half-blood Quintus, who has arrived at camp to sort of assist Chiron because Mr. D. Dionysus is, like, off- wrangling the minor gods um percy's very suspicious of him and his ha and his hellhound mrs o'leary i love the name mrs o'leary for the hellhound it's incredible she is fantastic it's great and then as the book goes on as they're traveling through the labyrinth kind of having various adventures um some of which i'm sure we'll go into in detail some of which are just you know shenanigans typical of this series um, it becomes clear towards the end as they're searching for Daedalus's workshop, they get there and they discover that, in fact, Quintus is Daedalus and has been, like, running around basically trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and who to support. And who to support, yeah. Um, and that he has already thrown in his lot with Cronus, so they're kind of too late but but he does regret it and sort of helps them in yes he has escape. his redemption arc yes yeah the famed daedalus redemption arc yes um and then the other important thing that happens at the end of the book is that we learn that luke has essentially his body has been like turned into a vessel for Cronus, and Cronus at the very end fully like regenerates and takes over Luke's body and is like returned now and is leading his own forces. So we're definitely coming to the crux of the series. The big bad has arrived. Like, okay. I just have to say, um, when you said, uh, Cronus, all I could think was Cronut. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we that should just, right now. <laughs> we should just call him Cronut because I think that's really funny. Yeah. Uh. Um, your enemy and mine, Cronut. Yes. <laughs> but I think those are the, like, I think those are the, like, major plot points that are, weren't 
included in the summary that Maddie gave us. I have to say, I thought I did a great job. I you thought did. I covered I mean, most of the great stuff that happens, and yeah. it was succinct. It, it sure was, was succinct. It was perhaps succinct. too succinct. <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's like get into it. Where do we want to start? I, I feel like we usually kind of start with broad strokes and then we get more specific. And I feel like I'd maybe like to talk about kind of pacing and structure first. Yeah, let's go nuts. Sweet. Okay. Go nuts for cronuts. <laughs> We're uh, never going to get anything done in no. this episode. <laughs> I did sort of predict that this was going to happen. Yeah. So, okay. We'll cut in. So, Julia, what did you think about the pacing of this novel as compared <laughs> to the previous three? <laughs> oh, my God. So, here's what I'll say about the pacing and about the structure as well of this novel. And I'm going to call back to something that I, I said in the last, in the Titan's Curse episode, um, which... At the time of recording hasn't been released, so Maddie hasn't listened to it, but something, something that I said in that episode is that not so much with uh, The Lightning Thief, but with the other novels thus far, Riordan tends to kind of choose a subset of mythology or a specific mythological figure around whom to base most of the stuff that he's drawing on. So we had Odysseus slash the Odyssey for Sea of Monsters. We had like, we had Hercules and his labors in Titans Cruise with a little sprinkling of like Jason, but fuck Jason. We don't want to talk about him. True. And... Uh, this one, obviously, we have Daedalus, who is kind of an interesting case because he's not, like, a hero in the typical sense, mm-hmm. but he does have quite a lot of associated mythology that ranges quite widely, and there are also... There's a lot to be done with the labyrinth. Yeah. And I also think the labyrinth makes it possible to do this kind of slightly less linear like structure because they're kind of going in and out of the labyrinth Mm -hmm. and so you get these like sort of travel-y passages and then they'll pop out somewhere and they have and but it feels less like they've gone on a road trip and there's an adventure at every stop in the way that basically all three previous books have felt so it's a little more interesting structurally and I think that's one of the reasons that I got so sucked into this one because it's still quite a fast pace and there's a lot of stuff happening but even those like travel sections don't feel like and then we went to the next place because Mm -hmm. even the transitions between like episodic adventures like um Garyon's Ranch like Mount St. Helens like um the Sphinx, all these things that they bump into in the labyrinth, even the transitions between them feel perilous and like they're still on the quest in a very meaningful way. Or rather, I guess I should say that the... And it goes the other way too, that the adventures individually don't feel like they're being forced to pause from the main goal of their journey, which is like getting to a further away place. Each adventure is also in the service of them getting further on the quest. Well, there's also the thing where it's like because they're they they can't they don't know how to navigate the labyrinth. You never know what's going to happen, right? So like with the sort of okay, we have to get to a place. You 
at least know what sort of place they're trying to get to. And like, you know, it's a geographical place, right? So you know, okay, they're going to have to go here and here and here. Whereas they do have an eventual goal, but there's no sense of how they're going to get there. So you're always like, okay, what's going to happen next? And you don't have any sense about what's going to happen next. Yeah. And also like the fact that the timeline is so much more unclear is actually very much in service of the structure of this novel. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. Like, I just... It's a it's a more mature structure, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. So that's... I mean, those are my thoughts about this. I don't know if either of you have anything to add. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you about... I think that the sort of development or the graduation and the way that the that the novel is structured kind of blends well with the fact that the books themselves are becoming more mature. Um, you get sort of, you know, Percy and Annabeth having a little bit more of a romantic tension now that they're a little bit older. You get more mature themes like death is dealt with really explicitly in this novel. Um, you know, you deal with, like, Cronut. Um, in, you know, literally entering a human vessel, and that's kind of actually quite... Yeah. Horrifying. Horrifying, yeah. yeah, it's horrific, right? So all of this kind of stuff, and also um, Antius or whatever, the son of Poseidon and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And Gaia. And Gaia, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, him having this, like, uh, throne of skulls or whatever it is that he's, like, dedicated to... Percy's father to Poseidon, their their shared father, and him having to be like, well, that's kind of messed up. And, you know, all these kinds of things are sort of um, making the novels a little bit more mature. Because obviously, as Percy grows up, he has to deal with these things. And as the audience was growing up, yeah. it made more sense to, to, to age the novels up. Well, there's sort of a more, like, explicit discussion of morality. Like, to go back to the um, Antaeus discussion... Um, yeah, there's a sense, okay, of not, like, knowing, you know, whether or not the gods are good, which definitely does come up earlier in the novels, but it's kind of a little bit more explicit here. But also you get um, Calypso's mention of this, which I thought was a really wonderful discussion. She was like, do you support the gods because they are good or because they are your family? And so, yeah, it makes it very explicit that, like, the gods kind of suck. And, you know, she supported Atlas because he was her father and like the gods are not necessarily inherently better than the titans like i mean cronus definitely sucks but like the other titans are they really better than a lot of the gods like not necessarily um and so that you know their sort of fight is partly about their obligation to their family members even if their family members uh suck yeah i I want to come back to the theme of family in one second because that's like the theme. Or I guess I should say the fact that we've gotten to this so quickly in our discussion and right off the back of a discussion of the structure of the novel, I think is related to my one other comment about like the actual narrative in this one, which is that because we're reaching the kind of crux of the series and of the plot of the the overarching plot of the series, um, the themes are really starting to crystallize in a visible way in this book in a slightly less on-the-nose fashion than some of the earlier books. Like, 
I remember having this conversation about like the theme of hospitality in Sea of Monsters and how Hermes basically just says it at one point and it's like oh okay so this is the theme of this novel but it's like no we're really starting to see like the way that all of these ideas about family and familial obligation and responsibility to the people to whom you are connected by blood or by choice. Well, yeah, there's a, a contrast between yeah. who you're connected to by blood and who you're connected to by choice. Yes. And that the relationships where you're connected to them by choice are often sort of more meaningful. Yeah. And, and more damaging, obviously, with the sort of Annabeth and Luke's relationship, that's really reflected well, because they were chosen family, and then it hurts so much more when Luke betrayed that. Yeah. Because of his anger at his, you know, quote-unquote blood family. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I think that that is all coming clear in the plot now more than just in like things that people say about their feelings about family or whatever it's actually becoming really relevant to the way events are playing out so yeah that's that's what i have to say about like the structure mm -hmm. <laughs> um do we want to talk more about, like, family since we're kind oh, of on that I, topic? I actually had a thought about the theme of family, which I didn't quite pick this up in earlier books, um, but specifically to do with Tyson. Um, so Tyson, to me, like, the way he's framed is very much like, um, like a sibling who has a developmental disability. And at first, you know, Percy, there's a sense of, like, resentment that, you know, he has to take care of Tyson and that, you know, he, Tyson, like is in a lot of ways very, you know, sort of childish in comparison to him, and he feels some resentment towards that, but that he sort of really works through that and learns to appreciate the things that are great about Tyson. Um, and yeah, Tyson is also to some degree his chosen family, because even though they are related by blood, you know, there's lots of people he's related to by blood who suck, like Antaeus. Um, yeah. So he's really sort of, yeah, decided that this person is really valuable, even if he doesn't process things um, or respond to things in the same way that uh, he does. Well, and there's a great moment in this book where that really rings true, where you can actually see in the text that Percy is working through those kinds of preconceived ideas about Tyson and the way that he thinks and the way that he kind of processes information, because at one point, Tyson makes an observation, a quite-on-the-nose observation, about um, Ethan Nakamura, saying, well, the enemy can't get a hold of Ethan because they'll try... I think it's about Ethan. It could be about another... It's WWE. about... I think it's about Nico. Because oh, I think it is about exact, Nico, yes. I think it's this exact passage that oh. I put a sticky note on. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was about Nico then, yeah. Yeah, because it literally says, so on page 38... Um, Tyson, they're talking, uh, Tyson and Percy are talking about Nico, and Percy tells Tyson he's, Nico is the son of Hades, and Tyson's like, yeah, okay, he's gone right now, right? And Percy's like, yeah, I tried to look for him, but we couldn't find him. Um, this is a, he says, this is a secret, Tyson, okay? If anyone found out he was a son of Hades, he would be in danger. You can't even tell Chiron. 
The bad prophecy, Tyson said. Titans might use him if they knew. I stared at him. Sometimes it was easy to forget that as big and childlike as he was, Tyson was pretty smart. He kind of goes on a little bit. And yeah, so we really get this like quite resonant, yeah, thing that like Percy is starting to acknowledge. And I mean, in the same way that he must be aware of to some degree, because we get some of the same stuff with the fact that all of the half-bloods have ADHD and dyslexia, that their intellectual disabilities do not make them less smart. Yeah. It's an interesting contrast. We had a conversation, Allison, about this trope of the big, strong, stupid character Mm. when we recorded our episode on Troy, which was just released as of the time of this recording, so I just edited it. And we had a pretty extensive discussion about the way that large, physically strong bodies are frequently othered and often given this attribute of stupidity of being like big and lumbering and mentally slow in this extremely ableist fashion. And I think that this book in particular, we're starting to see a lot of... Because we we have multiple physically or mentally disabled characters in the pages of Percy Jackson, but this book in particular, we get Tyson and we also get Hephaestus, Mm. who are both really good examples of how well and thoughtfully Riordan manages to deal with disability. Yeah. And I mean, I think Riordan's, like, background as a teacher really shines through here because it's really clear that he understands the the problems that like children as they are growing up like grapple with and that he's you know seen different children grapple with different things and that he has a lot of compassion and empathy for those things um you know obviously some teachers don't inherently have that because they kind of suck but it's pretty clear that that's like drawing directly from his experience as a teacher well, and the great thing about Riordan as well is obviously he deals with these themes really well in the original Percy Jackson The Olympians series, but he also goes on, especially in later books like the Heroes of Olympus mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, series, where he deals a lot with like queer characters and and kind of children and teenagers dealing with like gender identity and all these things, and also in his other series. He sort of begins to introduce those characters as well as an acknowledgement that you know, young people, children, adolescents, teenagers, they, you know, they, they struggle with these things. And these are, these are, this is kind of the path that these kids take. And so it's important to reflect that in the pages of a book. Right. And so I think he, he continues to do a really good job of that even after this series. In this book, we get the resolution of Grover's search for the god Pan, who has been missing, and who... There was kind of a declaration in antiquity, oh, the the god Pan is dead, um, but none of the satyrs wanted to believe this. And this is a real um, mythological thing. Like, it, it does appear in sources. Yes. Okay. So, and yeah, this one actually does come from sources, unlike several other things about Pan, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, But yeah, so in this book, they find Pan. He's like in the labyrinth or they find him via the labyrinth. And he says to all of them, uh, this is page 315, 
Um, you have found me and now you must release me. You must carry on my spirit. It can no longer be carried by a god. It must be taken up by all of you. And Pan, like, gives them all, like, the blessing of his spirit, essentially, to, like, carry on the work of maintaining the wild because he is, like, fading mm-hmm. from the world. And then he dies. He, he, like, dies, dies. And then a little later on, basically, we get this passage where the Council of Cloven Elders refuses to believe Grover when he brings back this news yeah. that, like, no, we have to do this now. It's, you know, we are the next generation, essentially. We have to we have to take responsibility for what's happening in the world. And the council is like, Bleh, no way. And Grover's like, well, okay, fine. And he says, um, we don't need a, t- uh, we don't need a council to tell us what to do. We can figure it out ourselves. This is page 341. And he starts kind of organizing the work of Pan's spirit. And Annabeth says, well, Grover seems to be growing up. Well, so I really love this because this is Rick Riordan in, at some point in the early, like, 2000s, like, specifically supporting environmentalism, and it's, like, these old people who are in charge refusing to take any responsibility, and these young people deciding, well, we're going to organize because this matters to us. Quite, yeah, quite an inspiring sort of rallying cry contained within the text of this novel, um, basically saying, you know, if if that work needs to be done, you need to take on that responsibility and do it because you can't trust that the status quo is going to change for the better, essentially, right? They have no motivation to, so they're just not going to do anything, right? Yeah, exactly. They have no motivation to because, and which is obviously exemplified by the reactions of this council, which is like, well, we just can't believe it. We refuse to believe it because if that's the case, then what does that say about our lives and, and yeah. what, you know, suddenly they're responsible for actually exacting change. Yeah. It's not convenient for them. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, they're kind of intentionally gaslighting Grover so that they don't have to take responsibility for their own actions. You might say that Grover bringing the news of Pan's nope. death is an nope. inconvenient truth. <laughs> 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 talking about this a bit earlier and one of the things I mentioned is that this is right after Al Gore. It's this is like before environmentalism was really had become like politically popular mm-hmm. in some ways. This was just the very be- this book was published in 2008 and that was like the early wave. I want to say, you know, obviously Greenpeace has been around forever like environmentalism as a movement has been around forever, but the really mainstream popular politics around environmentalism as we know them today were really just kicking off at this point and particularly the idea of like environmental education for kids yeah and also the idea of like climate change is like a global pressing threat because that was not necessarily present in well i don't again i can't really speak to like other cultural traditions regarding this but you know in terms of like white people trying to deal with environmentalism yeah I mean, well, and this is a quite explicit sort of remark about the state of the world and the state of, of nature and the mm-hmm. earth. Like he's not he's not approaching it with a gentle hand, right? It yeah. is quite explicit in the message that he's sending, which I yeah, I've always really thought it's like an interesting thing to include in these yeah. in these books, an interesting subplot. Yeah, it's it's very appreciable. Um and and 
the uh, and the idea that the world is not going to fix itself we as individuals each have mm-hmm. to take responsibility but it's also you know about collective power right it's like okay if we you know each one of us individually can't necessarily make that much of an impact but if we behave as a collective we can do something yeah. that the uh, people in power refuse to do yeah yeah but it's that we we all have to be members of that collective socialism yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, so I need to also talk about Pan in terms of etymology, because uh, this wouldn't be an episode if I didn't talk about the etymology of Greek words. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, Or if ap- one of us didn't. Yeah, yeah, apologies to Maddie. Time for me to tune out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are sort, sort of two different theories about the, where the name comes from. The first is, so the Homeric hymn to Hermes, which are these, the Homeric hymns are sort of these um, older texts that don't really have an author. They're these, like, religious hymns, but that also sort of talk about, um, like, where gods come from and stuff. Yeah, Um, so they're narratives of the gods that were produced and recorded around the same time as as the Homeric epics, which is why they get referred to as the Homeric hymns, even though they are not authored by, quote unquote, Homer, such as Homer even exists at all. Most of them are major narratives of specific gods. So I believe the Homeric hymn to Apollo includes the narrative of him slaying the dragon at Delphi and like becoming yeah. the god there. Um, anyway, to circle back to Pan. Um, so this Homeric hymn to Hermes says that Pan comes from, so the, the Greek word pas, this word means all. Um, and th- so their, their explanation, the Homeric hymn is because he delighted all. This is a little bit suspicious because the etymologies that the Greeks often assigned to words were often wrong. So the other theory is that the god Pan um, has an Indo-European origin in terms of an older Indo-European god. Um, So you could sort of trace the name back to like Sanskrit. That in my suspicion is probably the etymology that's more correct. Yeah, the Greeks would have, the Greeks tend to assign etymologies to words that they feel are appropriate for the way that they get used in Greek, but a lot of these words go back further and just, you know, the Greeks were just making shit up. Uh, Yeah, also, uh, the Greeks are not the central people in um, the world. Um, Surprise! There were other people. Despite... uh, (laughs) our modern desire to make that so Greek culture is very dependent on um, broader Indo-European cultural things that were happened earlier and specific specifically stuff from the Near East uh, which nobody likes to admit so yeah the like yeah like the Near East and North Africa had huge influence on Greek culture and language um uh so you know big shocker Brown people originated a lot of what we consider Western civilization. Woo! Yeah. Add dramatic echo. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think this is the first book that doesn't say Western civilization. No, it, there's it, one. it doesn't. Oh, there's one. Oh no! I, I noticed that as there's well. There's always got to be one. There's always got to be one. 
But yeah. Uh, but it's less of a like statement in yeah. this one. Well, because also there's really there's also yeah. sort of like again because it talks more explicitly more explicitly about how the gods are terrible, you know, there's less emphasis on Western civilization being good. Certainly Percy is a character and probably Riordan as an author be kind of coming into this um sort of theme or whatever of realizing that like the sort of society or quote-unquote civilization that the gods have built is like not all great actually like yeah people are good people should live but also the gods maybe do not deserve the praise that they yes uh are offered uh okay so calypso do we want calypso (laughs) we can talk about calypso She's she's delightful. Calypso, I mean, my wife. Yeah, I mean, do you have stuff you want to say about her? We're all gay for Calypso. I love Calypso. Are, I, are you amazing. not gay for Calypso? I, she's fine. Wow, rude. Offended. Okay, so me and Maddie are gay for, for gay for Calypso, and Julia's opinion is wrong. <laughs> I'll take that. I I do I I love this chapter. I've always I mean I've always thought it was like kind of an interesting chapter as a standalone because it exists on a whatever quote unquote phantom island. Uh, this sort of I was gonna say mythical land, but it's literally mm-hmm. I mean it's all myth. <laughs> But, you know, this this sort of phantom island where Calypso uh, lives out her eternity um, for siding with her father Alice in the first war, beep, boop, boop, blop, whatever. Um, and she's beautiful and ethereal and amazing, and she falls in love with Percy because Percy is a dumbass, but I guess, like, hot for a 14-year-old. I don't know. Yeah, a little bit weird. Kind of <laughs> weird. Um, <laughs> don't super love that. Sus. Yeah. Because we don't really get, like a great description of Calypso and, like, kind of her business and, like, whether she, like, has the wisdom and knowledge of having been alive for, like, thousands of years or if she's just, like, exists kind of trapped in this teen body and so it's and mine, so it's, like, fine. Yeah. Well, it's also, like, there's the, you know... (laughs) But then, but then if she's, like, kind of a teenager, that makes it way worse that she was fucking Odysseus. True. Who was, who was definitely, like, in his 40s. So... It's bad Everything, everything is bad. Calypso, Basically, I'll say this, I'm much more comfortable deciding that Odysseus is kind of a predator than deciding that Calypso is yeah, kind which of a is predator. certainly the case. Yeah, I mean, of our decision about Calypso. But I think the reason that I am less gay for Calypso is that I am much more familiar with the the Odyssean version of her, mm-hmm. who is a much more ambiguous figure. Yeah, yeah and I, I did have a note about this. Uh, surprise, surprise, I did read a Wikipedia page in anticipation of coming here today, uh, which was that I did, thank you, thank you, I did note the sort of difference in, in presentation and characterization of Calypso in this novel versus in the Odyssey, which is like, just the way that she sort of interacts with Odysseus versus Percy and Mm -hmm. the way that the sort of more like active versus passive like trapping of him or like falling in love with him or wanting to marry him Mm -hmm. it it is treated differently which I think is good because obviously Percy is 14 and it's a little bit more ambiguous in this novel about like 
you know, she's like kind of loving from afar and she's kind of like, well, I'm not going to make that decision for you, but you could like be happy here and we could just like chill on this sweet island and like yeah. eat papayas or whatever and live a sweet life. But it's a little bit less like sort of forward, I think, probably because of his age mm-hmm. and because of the the sort of age of this yeah. novel. Um, I wanted to introduce my one fairly major gripe about this book and the series in general. So, okay, it's my one pink sticky note, (laughs) which is my, like, all the other ones are green and these are like, these are some fun things to talk about or, like, points that I'm going to want to look at again. The pink one is like, this sucks. So, on page 192, in the middle of the encounter with Hephaestus, when they they go to Hephaestus's forge... Annabeth is talking to Hephaestus and is like, hey, like, you know, we need your help. She's negotiating with him. And Hephaestus asks her, who's your mother? And she says, Athena. And he says, fine goddess Athena, a shame she ne- she pledged never to marry. And then they go on. That's like all he says. But so here's the thing about this. There is a story in the kind of Athenian, like... Um, like, genealogical myth about, like, where the Athenian people came from, about Hephaestus pursuing Athena for sex. Um, he is, in fact, married to Aphrodite, but he he wants to get down with Athena. Which, I mean, is kind of fair, like, that he wants to get down with somebody well, who is not Yeah, because Aphrodite's been getting down with everybody but Hephaestus. Yes. So, like, I don't blame him for, like, whatever. Yeah. He, I think he is allowed to cheat on his wife. The infidelity is not an issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is an issue? And, and in fact, even this sort of conjunction of Athena and Hephaestus, in terms of, like, Athenian civic religion and the way that they worshipped these gods, this makes a lot of sense. Because Athena is sort of considered... They're both gods of craftspeople. It's just that Athena is the goddess of, like, women's crafts, specifically weaving. And Hephaestus is the god of, like, the quintessential men's craft smithing. So there are these kind of... They have parallel domains in that way, so it makes sense that they would imagine this, like, connection into this story that they have about them. But so Hephaestus pursues Athena, and she says no, obviously, because she is a maiden goddess. She is not interested in having sex with anybody, particularly men, but anybody and she flees from him and he just like jerks off on her skirts and like ejaculates on her without her consent in fact actively against her desires and when she like is disgusted and like wipes off his semen and throws it on the ground then the the first athenians the like earthborn um what what are what the Greek term is autochthonous, so like born from this earth, basically, um, those people like sprung up from where Hephaestus's like semen fell on the ground, specifically after having also come in contact with Athena. So there's a the connection with both of them, and this sucks. Like it is a rape myth, and it is the third time in. Percy Jackson, where we have gotten the story of a mythological rape, either from the 
perspective of the man who was chasing the woman and it's very dismissive of or like completely ignorant of his actions or where it frames the rape is consensual as we get with Medusa in the first book. When we talked about Medusa in the first book and when we talked about, um, we talked very briefly about Apollo and Daphne in, uh, and the way that that comes up in Titan's Curse. And both times I feel like I recall us basically saying like, you know, he's obviously, Riordan is obviously sanitizing this mythology, writing out the sexuality for the sake of his young audience. And I can understand that, but it feels dismissive of what is actually happening in this mythology. And like, particularly with Medusa, okay, yeah, like the her as a raped woman is like a really difficult thing to deal with and not really in the common consciousness. And Apollo and Daphne, like it's such a glancing mention. And in fact, Apollo does get scolded a little bit by Artemis, but mm -hmm. like, it's still him talking about the this nymph he was chasing and in this kind of grumpy way, like, oh, she got turned into a tree, whatever. It's like, yeah, because you were trying to rape her. You know, like, you know what's interesting, though, is I think it could be mentioned glancingly by the gods in a way that was also reflective of the fact that, like, they don't care about it that much, but it is a big deal. So if yeah. you had somebody reacting, being like, that's super shitty, well, then I, it would have been fine. I think that that certainly is an issue, and I think that it would have been actually fairly easy to have some, even a secondary character, but a character who is, like, a half-blood or something, even, a, you know, Annabeth even commenting, like, well, you know, there's a reason for that. Let's not. Let's just not say. Oh well, too bad she doesn't want to marry. It's like you were. She, it was like you were being a jackass or something. Yeah. Like like, any any sort of mention or counterance to in this example, Hephaestus being like, ah, oh, too bad, grump, 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 grump. It's like you could yeah. have very easily inserted a comment because Annabeth knows. She knows the histories. She knows the myths. It would not have been hard to... Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been out of character for Annabeth to, like, know something about this and to want to defend her mother. Yeah. You know, to be like, well, yeah, of course she doesn't want to marry when men behave like you. Yeah, yeah. it would have been easy to, to, to sort of fight back on that. And so I agree, it is unfortunate that Again, we see this sort of like, I, I don't want to say ignorance of, but like a, an express sort of rejection of, of the actual myth of the actual story in favor of, you know, sanitizing it, but also just kind of brushing it under the rug. Yeah, because there are ways that you don't have to talk about rape. Like you could just say that this person was, you know, chasing somebody down. But essentially this idea, because you can talk about consent to little kids in a way that doesn't bring up sex. Yeah, it, it could have yeah. easily been like, oh yeah, because she didn't want to be with you. Yeah. It would have been as simple to, to yeah. even yeah. say that, right? Even, yeah, like in the Apollo and Daphne example, we do get this kind of acknowledgement that she was not, that he was kind of harassing her, but it's still delivered in this very humorous tone and by Apollo. Yeah. Like, I wish that it had been Artemis who'd said something because they were already having this conversation about him harassing her her hunters. Mm -hmm. And it's like it wouldn't have been entirely out of place to put that in her mouth and then it would have felt less like some dude being like, ha-ha, my conquest. Yeah, talking about his like, exploits. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, buddy, no, that's like not cool, actually. So 
you know, like once, okay, like I can kind of understand, particularly in the very first book, twice I was like, this sucks, but like, it's not 100% terrible, it's sanitized, and I don't love it, but like, okay. But man, this is the third time that something mm -hmm. similar has happened, and I just think that like we as a society, and we, we as a modern, like, media production and consumption complex have to find a way to talk about and and sanitize if necessary like okay i understand with children's media you're not going to get into the gory details but like we have to find a better way to deal with these rape narratives that don't involve either erasing the aspect of non-consent entirely or excusing it yeah Mm -hmm. or making it a joke, you know? Like, there just, there has to be a better way to do it. Yeah. It's, my feelings about the Hades and Persephone myth are similar. Yes. Which and we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, I'm sure. So yeah. I do have a non sequitur that is less serious, which is, so if Athena is implied to be a maiden goddess and the Greeks' sense of sex is that it, it's only sex when it involves a penis, that does leave the door open for Athena being a lesbian. I mean, I think that's a more common interpretation with Artemis because yeah. she hangs around with her with like women. nymphs yeah. all the time. Athena very much like it, a lot of her mythology, she really like she hates other women too. Yeah, she does. Like however, you know, look, she's look, really again, it, it leaves the door open. I'm I mean, not saying yeah, it's a good course. interpretation. But, but this is what I was saying earlier is like I'm happy to read Artemis as a lesbian, but I'm also very happy to read Athena as our, like, as our, like, token ace. Yeah. And I think that that's, like, fine. There's obviously, like, asexual and aromantic people exist and are valid. And I think that, as you know, to the same degree that we don't want to, like, we don't want to say, well, oh, obviously this person isn't interested in this woman isn't interested in men so obviously she's like not interested in sex at all but like i do think that there is a way that athena is framed particularly in these books that really to me indicates a kind of idea of asexuality mm. as opposed to like being a lesbian yeah no you're you're right about that right and i because we do have artemis who's perfectly legible as a lesbian or mm -hmm. as ace in these books i don't think we're like erasing lesbians as far as a category oh, yeah, yeah. of women who are not interested in men in mm -hmm. as far as the way the gods are portrayed in Percy Jackson. Yes. So there's like, there's obviously multiple readings available of all of these figures, both in the mythology and in Riordan's representations, but yeah. Athena Aeroe's queen, as I said earlier. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, should we talk about maybe some other little things that we maybe liked or didn't like? Petty gripes petty time. Gripe petty gripes I like, I don't actually really have any petty gripes. Oh, I, I have petty have, gripes. I just have, stuff that I want to bring up. No, okay. I have petty gripes. Well, I have, I have one thing just to carry on a thread from an earlier podcast you guys did about these books. I guess it must have been the Sea of Monsters episode, just talking right. about fatal flaws. It does appear again in this novel uh where when nico et al uh raise bianca her spirit and speak with her she warns nico about the fatal flaw of the children of Ares of Ares of hades uh which is 
holding grudges. And I thought it was kind of interesting because you guys obviously talked about um, Fatal Flaws being just this kind of device that has taken on more significance kind of in retrospect than it maybe had initially. It was, And so I thought it was interesting then that we get this kind of new angle, which is that, okay, so all the children of Hades have this kind of shared flaw which is holding grudges. Um, and I just thought it was sort of like an interesting way yeah. to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Well, because it kind of implies that all of the, go- like, God's children probably have... Share a flaw, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's true that the way that they're presented, the children of each specific God tend to have similar temperaments. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense in a way. But I mean, I, you know, admittedly, like, the the further I get into my, like, literary education, the more I am deeply unenamored of the concept of the fatal flaw as a prescriptive thing Mm. rather than a descriptive thing. Yeah. I mean, I also think it, it doesn't really fall in line with Bianca's character. Bianca is never really framed as somebody who holds grudges. Yeah, we don't see her do it. I mean, she claims that it was, like, a problem that she had, implicitly, but we never see that, so it's a little weird. Because what we do see of Bianca is her making a selfish choice for herself, which when she joins the Hunters Mm -hmm. and is going to, like, presumably abandon her younger brother right when they've gotten into this, like, crazy new world. Um, And so that reads to me as more of, as whatever, a sort of flaw in her character, Mm -hmm. but you don't get that same, because you don't get that same anger that you see in Nico. Yeah, but it's also doing something selfish or resenting somebody is not the same thing as holding a grudge. No, like, certainly that's a not. separate idea. Certainly not. No. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a weird, it's kind of just weird. I think it was probably a throwaway. Like, I don't think that Riordan meant for it to really mean much. I yeah. think it was probably just the way that he, he wrote Bianca saying that, but it did feel very odd to me to sort of, like, presume this kind of collective mm-hmm. flaw yeah, because as inherited it, presumably by a godly parent. Yeah, because of what it implies about everyone else mm-hmm. to yeah. some degree. And it's like, okay, maybe he didn't mean to, but like, Mr. Riordan, words mean things. <laughs> <laughs> sir, sir. It's, it's just one of these cases where like, a th- like, and I mean, I don't think I've ever read a novel without some of these where some throwaway from the author implies something bananas about the world building. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys, neither of you are as active on Twitter as me, but the last couple of days, Twitter's been losing their fucking minds because the Teletubbies tweeted about the Teletubbies getting vaccinated. (laughs) The Teletubby vaccination card forgery. (laughs) Yeah. and, like, they had, like, dates in the future on them. And oh then also, God. like, the, like, patient numbers being super high. So everyone was, like, <laughs> and this implies so much. And, like, Astrotubica is the name <laughs> of one of the vaccines oh that one God. of them gets. And it's, like, you guys have just implied so many things about <laughs> what exists in the Teletubby universe without meaning yeah, to at all. In the Teletubby universe. I know. Well, and, like, listen... You will find people who will go full fucking tinfoil hat about anything. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's true. As obviously on stuff that is way more throwaway than this line about fatal flaws. Because Mm -hmm. we know that the idea of the fatal flaw actually is very important. 
in Percy Jackson. So although it is a throwaway, it can't be that throwaway, and we are obliged as readers to take it seriously when this is a major aspect and a major theme in the world building and character building in these books. Yes. Yeah. Um, so another, like, a smaller thing that I wanted to comment on is Briaries. Um, and how poor Briaries has PTSD. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think this is really interesting because obviously it is, you know, kind of an oversimplification of PTSD. But you do get this really clear thing that it's not, a, that, you know, you can have all the physical strength in the world, but somebody's abuse of you can totally hinder your ability to act in favor of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this isn't the only kind of representation of PTSD that we get in this book. We get mm. Grover and his trauma with being underground or being in caves. Mm -hmm. And even, I want to say I feel like there was a mention of something with Percy even, but I can't recall what exactly it was. Um, that like, similar to, we said, Maddie, you were saying earlier, there's like a lot of more mature stuff that starts coming up more explicitly in this book. You know, people's deaths, we have like, explicitly a funeral in this one, stuff like that, but also characters dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For those just tuning in, we are about to enter etymology section. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about... Yeah. yeah. As if we haven't already yeah. had, like, 17 <laughs> etymology sections. As if we didn't have the dictionary out, like, an hour ago, yeah. Um, so, I don't know where exactly he says this, but at one point, Pan or somebody says about it's Pan. It's Pan. It's when they're in Pan's cave. Okay. I just couldn't yeah. find it. Yeah. Um, Pan says, oh yeah, my name, like the, my name comes from the word meaning rustic or wild, something like that. Which is just not true. That we can find out. Or rather, it might be true, but there's no concrete evidence. Yes. Yeah, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that it's true. Pan is the god of, like, Arcadia. He's the god of, like, the fields and the flowers and flourishing out yeah. there, whatever. And, like, as Allison mentioned earlier, Pan comes from pas pas pan, the Greek adjective, but or it, that is the way that they etymologize yeah. it. And... We have multiple bits of pan mythology in here that are just, like, completely from nowhere. Yeah. Like, there's that thing, and then there's also, because we have this, we have the modern word panic that is etymologized from the name of the god pan, ick being, yeah, like a suffix to make things be adjectives. Pan, supposedly. In yeah, in Latin. Yeah, it comes from Latin. And it's this idea, we have this idea of, like, the, the, um, Panicondena, I think, is, like, the great, the, like, terrible cry of Pan, which I could not track down a source for anywhere. There's a Greek phrase, the earliest source I could find for it is an Encyclopedia Britannica entry from 1911 that has no source, <laughs> and the idea of this Pan having, like, a scream that incites panic. The most explicit modern source, and the one that's cited by Wikipedia, is Robert Graves' The Greek Myths, which is also a text that is just, like, Robert Graves writing his own versions of a lot of this myth mythology, and he does not cite any sources whatsoever. 
despite the fact that Graves gets treated as an authority by a lot of lay people reading and writing about Greek mythology, like, Graves wasn't really a classicist, to my knowledge, and wasn't looking at the primary sources, doesn't cite any primary sources, and so that means this, like, idea of, oh, Pan, he, he has this, like, uh, this power to incite panic with his scream. No idea where that comes yeah. from. I, well, um, the word panic itself, as far as, like, a, it seems to come pretty far back, like, kind of 16, 1700 mm -hmm. in that meaning of, like, fear or terror, particularly in a large group of people, and it goes back to the Greek panicon of Pan, but, like, why, what is the association with terror? Where, what source does that come from? I couldn't figure yeah. it out. Also, I just want to briefly touch on this, is that this doesn't even, this phenomenon of somebody trusting a source that comes from the 1900s and the source from the 1900s, like the early 1900s, is based on absolutely nothing. This also happens in academia. Like, oh, I yeah. had a whole research project where I went down this rabbit hole being like, where's the source? Turns out everybody was citing this guy literally from 1900 or maybe the late 1800s where he just has had no reason to say what he said. Like, there's no source, no backup in any way, shape, or form. And then scholars have been citing him for, like, 50 to 100 years without checking whether or not he was right. So... It's yes. really annoying. So ju just to, like, contextualize this rant, um, in the book, Pan obviously dies and he passes his, like, spirit on. And later, when Camp Half-Flood is battling uh, Luke slash Kronos' army it, at Camp Half-Blood, Grover releases this panic, this scream that causes the army to retreat and scurry back into the hole of the labyrinth. And so... Which the point, is dope, but... Yeah. Which is cool and is an obvious reference to this thing that doesn't seem to exist earlier than about 100 years, 100 to 300 years, depending on... on yeah, like, going. this is the thing, is we have this idea of panic. I just, like... It's clear that there is a Greek, like a classical Greek phrase that people seem to be citing as evidence of this being a thing. I just can't figure out what it's from. Yeah. Which is very weird that like mm -hmm. I can't track down a citation for it and it does make me wonder if somebody made it up at some point. Yeah. Classics really does have like, um, how do I put this? I wish there was like a good term for implicit trust in like established authorities for no real reason that we just like trust the elites in our field to be saying things that are trustworthy even when they have no real backup and they're often they're they're often not um they just say things with a lot of confidence because they believe they are right because they're White men. Yes. Um, and I, there's lots of examples of this. Like, yeah. It happens all the time in, for example, North American archaeology, where people will just say things about Indigenous people and not trust the Indigenous people's interpretations, and then they just turn out to be, the white people turn out to be totally wrong. Yeah. Um, Rick Raritan, okay, fine, you use this, like, slightly suspect source to but the thing in a is fiction a cool book, thing right? in a fiction book and it was like a super cool moment for Grover so yeah and i yeah. mean we've said this before that like Riordan is doing the best at, that could be expected from a layperson writing 
nearly 20 years ago. Like, yeah. we are scholars actively working in this field now, 20 years on. There's mm -hmm. already been a lot of changes in the politics of the field and the way that we talk about certain things. We went into this when we did our Western Civilization rant in the first episode. Mm -hmm. Western Civilization. Precisely. That, like... Is it great that he's using, he seems to be using Robert Graves as a fairly authoritative source? Like, no, but a lot of people use Robert Graves yeah. as an authoritative source, including, like, all of Wikipedia, so we can't really expect a lot better. Yeah, and it's also, like, it's fine, fine, because, you know, this is not an authority on Greek mythology, and mm -hmm. frankly, like, people, it doesn't really matter if they know if everything is correct, right? Yeah. Like, that. this is not a thing that it really matters a whole lot if people, yeah. you know, have... A misinterpretation. The um, stuff that's like, yeah, like the things that make me more crazy are the things like what I brought up with Ath with Athena and Hephaestus. Yeah. That's like this is impacting the way people think about yeah relationships and sexuality and consent in antiquity and the way they like existed and how they've come forward to us because that's like serious shit that actually affects society. Mm -hmm. The etymology of the word panic does <laughs> not, not <laughs> Well, and it's also clear that it's like it's like a conscious decision on on the part of the author to to remove or to erase that story. Whereas he probably just kind of used a bad source for this, and, yeah, and it doesn't ultimately really matter. That yeah, much. like and and does he have any way to know better? Like no. Yeah, exactly. Um. So I have another petty gripe. Okay, do it. Which is that? Okay, so. At, so at one point, like, somebody says, it's probably Annabeth, says that uh, Daedalus has been, you know, alive for 2,000 years. In the mythology of this book, it is acknowledged that the Romans exist, and the, the what was happening 2,000 years ago was the Romans. That's my petty. Daedalus, like, in the mythology of this book, evidently comes way before the Romans. Yeah. So, you know, In again. fact, he comes way before the, the classical Greeks, Well, too. that's not implicitly acknowledged in the book. Not as much, but I mean, we have the acknowledgement that he comes from like the eight, like yeah, from the from like you know we have this talk this talk about like Theseus and the mm -hmm. idea of like Crete and the implicitly the yeah. Minoan civilization, which substantially predates yeah. classical Greece. I mean, but I mean, it's not really acknowledged that classical Greece is separate from the mythology. But it's true. It's acknowledged that the Romans happened after the Greeks. Yes. Yeah, 3,000 years might have been closer to the yeah, mark. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, And again, very petty. Um, do we want to talk about uh, how Rick Riordan has A, some hilarious jokes, and B, some hilarious chapter names? Uh, yeah, King of Humor. Can I, can I do like, oh uh, yeah, you know what, let's do this first. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my hilarious joke from this is uh, when Percy, when Annabeth is explaining to Percy about the red cows, he says, you mean they're holy cows. <laughs> it's such a dad <laughs> pun. But I kind of love it. <laughs> I don't know if I picked out any specific jokes this time. Nothing really got me as good as the damn joke. D the damn curse. Again, I, Maddie, excellent. so you haven't heard this episode yet, but I thought this was the funniest thing when I was like 10 and I, still I thought think it was the funniest thing when I reread it two I weeks ago. I still think it's hilarious. Like, when I was it's 10, I joke. kept saying that joke to, like, my parents or whatever, and they were like, this isn't that funny, Allison. And I was like, it's hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It is hilarious. Um, I love the chapter title, The Council Gets Cloven. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is great. Because they're called the Cloven Council, for anybody who hasn't read this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I enjoy that. I also enjoy, uh, what is it? Like, I fight my brother to the death or something. Yeah, my, <laughs> my brother duels me to the death. Yeah. That one's a good one. That's a good one. For me, and this is, uh, and this is the, um... Well, okay, so, first of all, The Underworld Sends Me a Prank Call is probably my favorite oh, one. Oh, that one. Yeah. That, yeah, that kind of... Yeah, but also, and this ties into something that I wanted to talk about as a separate note of appreciation, Nico Buys Happy Meals for the Dead is a great chapter title, and also, I adore Nico summoning ghosts using, like, Coca-Cola and Happy yes. Meals. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And just mixing it up into a slurry. It's and awesome. the ghosts are like, this is delicious. Yeah. yeah. There is a note uh, on page 86 when this for the first sentence happens, the ghost of King Minos, not that we know who that is yet, says, in my day we used animal blood. It's perfectly good. Good enough. They can't taste the difference. <laughs> and it's it's actually great. So this is, um, Maddie, I don't know if you, you, you may not know this, but this isn't actually an explicit reference to something that happens in the Odyssey. Odysseus, like, goes to the edge of the world and summons the dead to try to, like, find out what's going on. And this is what he does, is he, like, sacrifices a bunch of cattle and drains their blood into a hole and lets all the ghosts come and drink the blood. And it's really gruesome and creepy. And I just really love the, like, fun subversion of Nico doing this, like, deeply goth thing yeah. with, with Diet Coke or whatever. Yeah, because Nico is deeply goth, and I love him for it. But he's also, like, a child, and it's like, hey, how can I feed the dead? Okay, I'm gonna go to McDonald's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, like, get a Happy Meal. Yes. Yeah, Coke and cheeseburgers, man. Yes. Um, another thing that I really appreciate, um, I love Rachel Elizabeth there, and Queen, she, yes. she nails... Kronos with a blue plastic hairbrush. Oh, it's yeah. iconic. It is amazing. It is amazing. She's such a great character. Oh. Yeah, she's really excellent. Yeah, and and this whole idea of like the the mortals who can see through the mist being kind of a thing that goes all the way back, and this idea that like okay, yeah, Ariadne's thread as a device helped, but what actually like made it happen for Theseus was having Ariadne help yeah. him. Yeah. And, and I, she was just like a mortal princess. Yeah, and that was kind and of And then he dumped her on an island. And that was kind of acknowledged in the mythology, right? That like Ariadne's help was essential. Yeah. Um I don't know what I was gonna say. Yeah. I was gonna say something. Shout out to all the women who get who are absolutely like irreplaceably yeah. useful to heroes and then get totally dumped. But the best part about Ariadne is a fucking god Dionysus comes down from the sky and is like, hey, do you want to be a, my immortal wife? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's <laughs> true. She did get her happy ending and I am happy um, for her. It was just not with Theseus. Yeah. Uh, okay, let me see. I have I have four remaining sticky notes. Let me see what they are. <laughs> oh boy. I know what one of them is. Oh yeah, okay. Speaking of Ariadne, actually, this is this next one's great. So there's there's this mention when they're talking about Rachel Elizabeth Dare, we get this great line where they're talking about like, you know, yeah, some mortals are are able to like navigate the labyrinth really easily. And we get this great line about how Harriet Tubman was a daughter of Hermes and yeah. had the help of mortals and was a implicitly using the labyrinth as part of the Underground Railroad, mm. which I think is just, I don't know, I think that's really great. I love these few times when Riordan picks out a historical figure and is like, yeah, this person is a demigod. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, a an awesome black historical figure. Yeah. Um, we, we love to see it. It's a great, it's just, like, a great choice in terms of a piece of history, and, like, 
it's a really interesting use of the labyrinth as like a thing. I mm. I really like the labyrinth. Yes. Me too. It's, it's my favorite book. It's so cool. It's such a cool piece of world building and like tragic that we didn't get more of it, to be yeah. honest. Mm -hmm. I understand why. Like, it's obviously, it's the kind of thing that's like, yeah, okay, if this continued to exist, it would be way too easy. It's like either you have to now use it all the time or you have to destroy it because it would be a huge plot hole if they if it existed and they just never used it again. Yeah, it's kind of like cell phones existing. It's like, why didn't you just call somebody on their cell phone? This plot would have been resolved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have, two, I have two more things. One of them is like slightly bigger than the other. I guess I'll do the really petty one first, which is there's a mention of um, Pankration, which is the Greek. Mm -hmm. It's a Greek wrestling sport. Um, in the book, it's uh, Percy's like, "What's that?" Essentially, and Ethan says, "Ethan." He's talking to Ethan Nakamura, and he says he means fighting to the death, no rules, no holds barred. It used to be an Olympic sport. I just would like to assert that they did not fight to the death. Yes. However, it was. I mean, Pankration was no holds barred. Like I think usually bare knuckle like, wrestling and fighting. Yes. They just... And, like, fully, like, naked, I believe. Yeah. Which is, like, sure is a thing to do to wrestle naked. Yeah. Um, with other men. Yes. It's, it's a thing. All of, all of Greek, classical Greek athletics were conducted naked, and in order to, um, prevent issues with one's dangly bits, <laughs> uh, they would tie a little string around the head of their penises and then like kind of tie it up. Oh, they tucked. I, yeah, they I tucked. know I was wondering about that. Yeah. Um, they tucked and they oiled up so they would yes, slide off so each So they other. would slide off each other, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But yes, so they walk so, on there. So the one thing I do know <laughs> shout out this to shout out to the classical Greeks for inventing tucking uh, all modern drag queens, thank you. <laughs> and then the last thing that I want to bring up is okay, so Obviously, I am, like, the person who does not remember these books amongst the three of us, so as I was reading, I was like, okay, I know something's going on with Quintus, but I couldn't, like, remember. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember oh. what the twist was going to be, I, so I was just like, okay, what is he going to turn out to, like, be? What's his deal? I sort of had a side note in my notes that was, like, if it turns out to be the case, then maybe we should talk about, like, double-edged swords and, like, double-sided gifts in Greek mythology because he gives the, like, ice whistle to Percy to summon Mrs. O'Leary. But that turns out to be... It's kind of lampshaded because it turns out to be straightforward, which was quite interesting in its own way. But what I did clock really early on with Quintus is we get a mention of the bird mark on his neck, like, mm -hmm. really early mm -hmm. on, before we find out that Quintus is, in fact, Daedalus and that the mark is the mark of his status as a murderer for having killed his nephew, and that his nephew was then turned into a bird. And when the bird mark was described, I was like, oh, cool, so he killed somebody. I was super suspicious mm -hmm. of him really early on because... There are a number of Greek myths. So this particular one about Daedalus and his nephew Perdix comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses, mm. Metamorphoses rather, and um, we have in the most explicit version a lot of these like bird transformation stories from the Metamorphoses, though many of them do predate Ovid, of course. Many, if not all of them, predate Ovid. Um, but I like was familiar with this as a pattern already, that like 
the, a murdered innocent is often transformed into a bird by the gods. The one that I know the best is um, is Tereus and Procne and Philomela, who... Um, I literally also have no idea who any of those people are. Okay, so, yeah, so, like... Um, there is a there's a Sophocles play that we only have fragments of, but this one's told in the Metamorphoses as well, that um, Tereus was a king of Thrace, married to an Athenian princess named Procne. Procne's all sad and lonely up in Thrace amongst the barbarians. They are also Greek. Whatever. Um, Thrace is not that far away. <laughs> but uh, he she's like, hey, will you, like, bring my sister here from Athens so that we can, like so that I can have a companion. And he's like, yeah, okay, cool. And he goes down and gets her sister Philomela and on the road back to Thrace, he rapes her on the side of the road and then cuts out her tongue so that she can't tell anybody. Um, but she, yeah, but she manages to, she like weaves a message about it into a tapestry to tell her sister. And then the two of them as revenge on Tereus um, and Procne in particular uh, m murders and like, she murders her son with Tereus and feeds him to Tereus, as one does when one is conducting violent revenge mm -hmm. in Greek mythology. And the gods transformed all four of them into birds as kind of a punishment. Seems fair. Yeah. Or I actually don't know if the kid gets transformed into a bird in that particular story, but certainly all three adults, Tereus, Tereus, Procne, and Philomela all get turned into birds of different kinds. Philomela gets transformed specifically into a nightingale, which is where we get, or one of them gets transformed into a nightingale, which is where we get the association of the nightingale with mourning. Mm. Because it's this idea of, like, I think it's actually proc one of them, anyways, gets turned into a nightingale, and we get this, like, association of the kind of mourning of the nightingale. Anyways, all that to say, this idea of, like, murdering a child in particular and then somebody getting turned into a bird is like a thing in some of these myths so when weirdly Quintus, specific yeah i mean yes it is weirdly specific i mean it's the same as people getting turned into plants in order to escape a sexual assault that happens more than once but the bird mark on quintus's neck immediately clued me in that he must have murdered somebody which was kind mm. of interesting so it's really interesting to see the places where Riordan has managed to use a very specific piece of mythology that's like, okay, even if you don't know all of what's going on, if you're really familiar with, like, classical myth, you might clock some mm, of it. Yeah. Just on that basis. Which, I don't know, I just, like, I think it continues to show how deft Riordan is in his use of these sources. Mm, yes. Yeah, it is it is great adaptation just because he he manages not only to sort of adapt the kind of bigger stories and myths, you know, in terms of the gods and the sort of, you know, Western civilization, bullshit, <laughs> whatever. But you know, but also in these kinds of little Easter eggs almost mm -hmm. for people who may already know things. It's like, oh I got that reference. Which can be kind of exciting, especially as a reader who's maybe older and a little mm -hmm. bit maybe like aged out from this novel like we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also even like when I was a little kid I read like Greek myths and stuff. Um mm -hmm. and so of course I'd be like, oh I know what happens here. Yeah. 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 And he does such a good job of choosing where to play stuff straight and where to subvert. Mm, yeah. 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 Totally. So I think that's the end of our, like, thoughts on this book. 
Um, thank you, Maddie, for joining us. It was a delight to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I hope that I contributed something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite my lack of kind of more relevant academic knowledge. That's fine. No, you, I think you added fun, and that's really what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, the it's, atmosphere. It's true. I think we had I think we had a productive discussion, but also this episode is going to be hilarious. So And that's what matters. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgments. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies and everyone who's bought us a coffee for their support of this podcast. Our next episode will be on the 1999 film The Mummy. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.